You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, David. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Finishing up a book. You know what that's like going over the last galleys, still Great. finding things, typos, little mistakes, word choices. Can now I say I, my no, books don't have mistakes, David, but I, uh, I can still muster some empathy for you just through sheer imagination. What's well, that you like? Are, yes, you're, you're a very creative like? mind. Yeah. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. Uh, this is the right show. Although, actually, by the time it airs, it'll be uh, it'll be uh, called Robert Wright's Non-Zero. That's one thing we're going to talk about is rebranding today, David. But first, let me tell people <laughs> who you are. You're David Korn, in case there's anybody who doesn't know. DC Bureau Chief of Mother Jones, uh, MSNBC analyst, possessor of, maybe you're not even keeping track, but possessor of close to a million Twitter followers. You're at 964,000 or something. David, did you know that? Um, I knew I was in that area. I haven't topped a million yet, but I'm sure after this episode, this will 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 put me over the top. Easily, easily. Uh, So uh, let me uh, tell people what this is about. We are here to, among other things, celebrate the life and legacy of Blogging Heads TV, David, which is uh, undergoing a little uh, life passage now. It's being rebranded as non-zero. That's what the YouTube channel will say now. Uh, non-zero, not coincidentally, is also the name of a uh, a newsletter I put out on Substack. Speaking of which, you have a newsletter. What's it called? American? What's it called? Our land? What's it's it called? Our land. And R it's not the, the, the letter R. Our land. O U R land. Our uh, land belongs to all of us. Although the newsletter is just mine. Sorry, and uh, it's not a Substack newsletter. Ooh, uh, but, but people, you know, people can go to davidcorn.com to get their free trial subscription. Okay, well, maybe we'll uh, have time to talk about why you made the radical decision to have a non-substack newsletter. But uh, meanwhile, I want to say, you know, you are here because you were one of the very first blogging heads. So Mickey Kaus and I started blogging heads in November 2005, along with a tech genius named Greg Dingle. You were the third non-Bob and Mickey guess. Yes. Matt Iglesias edged you out for the number two slot. Uh He showed up in January of 2006. Mm -hmm. A younger and more energetic man, David. Frankly, he just beat you. He was just hungrier. He was just hungrier. You know, you got to watch out for those young bucks. The, yeah, the the I know this the type. Maybe the first time Matt's ever been described that way, but nevertheless, the, the lean and hungry type, as I think Shakespeare yeah. so, said. So, who was number one? Eric Umansky, who is now ProPublica. Do you know Eric? I, I not well, but I know Eric. Yeah, and he was at Slate at the time, I think. Yeah. And um, and so you came on with me, and then the next week, I think, with Mickey. Uh, and do you want me to, uh, I'll tell you what the first, the title of the first segment you and I talked about, and I want to see if you can remember what it is a reference to. Cause okay. I, I, even if I hadn't looked back, this is maybe the part of my blogging heads discourse with you that I most remember because it was so much fun to talk about. The title is Cheney's alcohol issue. And this was 2005. Mm-hmm. And that we should tell people January 2006 or we're, February. We're talking, about, we're talking about Dick Cheney, not uh-huh. Liz Cheney. Mm-hmm. Um, for the youngsters out there who might uh, not 
recall him. Uh, it was the middle of the Iraq war, but I'm trying to figure out, uh, we talked a lot in those days about- I'm gonna give you an important hint, okay? Okay. The next week you had a conversation with Mickey and the first topic title was hunting season over already? Well, was this when he blew off the face of his friend? This is when he he shot a friend while while on a hunting expedition. Yes, and so and so were we speculating at the time? Was there public speculation that 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 uh, Cheney had downed one too many beverages? Beverages. Uh, I think there was speculation. Uh, I doubt it started with you and and me, but I we would have been yeah, happy. I, mean, I don't spec. You know, I'm a reporter. I don't speculate. No, it's I facts. Sometimes speculate about speculation that already exists. Well, that's what you're I doing now. Of, yeah. yeah, which I try not to speculate. But so, but when we what was that the alcohol problem we were referring to? Yeah, I to? think so. I think so. We had a good time with that. It was uh, those were the days. So um, the uh, the other memory I have of you. Blogging Heads Related Memory. I was down in D.C. And, you know, Blogging Heads was a going, it was a it was a big going thing. Uh, you know, at some point, the New York Times started featuring it on the homepage, and you were one of their star. You would have these debates with Jim Pinkerton yes. that were frequently featured on the homepage of the New York Times. But uh, I don't know if this was before or after that, but I was down in D.C. in a Starbucks with you, and you were we were starting to talk about like well what's going to happen is this going to become a money making thing and you of course being you were already bringing up the issue of revenue shares uh being a market oriented free very very pro free market guy as you are with a collectivist you know with a co ultimately you would have redistributed the income of course to the needy david i understand that but uh and you were you were, you were talking about that and some young woman walks up and looks at you and said i saw you on blogging heads tv <laughs> yes, and then she walks off, and I said, "David, you should be paying me," and no, you were I, not persuaded. I paid her so that I could get say, a, higher, yeah. a bigger piece of the revenue sharing. That oh, was, that's what was, that's uh, what was going on. I wanted to make sure you realized my value to the enterprise here. Anyway, the revenue was not forthcoming as things came <laughs> <No>. out. <laughs> um, no, I, I actually, I, I, I missed those days of debate and discourse uh, with Jim. Pinkerton. I mean, yeah. I, I, I I like Jim. Uh, I think one of the casualties of the Trump years is that we lost that sort of aspect of our overall national political conversation. I mean, it's one thing to talk to people, you know, talk to someone, disagree about foreign policy, housing policy, tax policy, even immigration policy with Mickey, whatever. It's quite another thing to disagree over whether it's a good thing to honor the Constitution or not. You know, whether we should have policies that allow hundreds of thousands of people to die or not. Whether we should have a president who lies over 30,000 times in four years, according to Glenn Kessler and others of the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, you know, the Trump years have just brought us so many awful and absurd things to argue about and to draw lines over that we are unable to then address these other matters that you and I for decades really you know as young journalists you know in you know would 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 enjoy would relish discussing with people who you might say on the other side or on your own side but who you disagreed with over something at that point in time yeah it was a different era um i, I you know you 
um, unlike Matt Iglesias, for example, and unlike many of the people who constituted kind of the blogging heads crowd early on, you were not a blogger at the time. You did you? I mean, remind me, have you always been a magazine guy? Were you at the Nation at the I mean, time? I mean, yeah, I was. Well, at that point, you know, for the first few years of this, I, uh, blogging heads, I was at the Nation. I moved to Mother Jones in 2007 i believe um and around that time i'd have to go back and check the archives um i also you know you know you know i had a column for the nation magazine an online column that went up whenever i wanted to put it up it was quasi bloggy mm -hmm. and then i also did a blog for um for cq Okay. Uh, for a while, I was a quasi blogger for The Guardian on and off. So, I mean, I was not like a full bore blogger. I was a journalist who had already been established as a journalist who then was asked by certain institutions to be what they then called a blogger. So it wasn't my core, my uh, core, core of my uh, professional identity, but I played a blogger on, on TV. TV. Yeah. Uh... Because I was going to ask, um, well, just how you would, you know, I mean, one thing that's changed hugely is the media landscape. It had changed yeah. by the time we started Blogging Heads relative to the time you and I got into journalism, uh, because blogs, that was a very different scene from magazines. Um, and it's changed a lot since, I guess, owing largely to social media, but not exclusively. Yeah. Um and I'm wondering what you think of all the changes. I mean, whether uh, you, like many people, are lamenting the demise of uh, America and American discourse and everything else, or what? Yeah, um, well, you know, I remember when, when I used to have to write my columns with a quill pen by candlelight, and, you know, the only person who got to see them was whoever I would show them to because we didn't have copy machines. I remember those days. Then. You remember those days? So things have certainly changed a lot since then. You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the, the Internet and the informa information or whatever you want to call it, revolution, the digital media revolution, you know, opened things up a lot. You know, you, you know, the saying was never get in an argument with someone who could buy ink by the barrel. There are lots of gatekeepers and the process, it was expensive to produce a newspaper or a magazine. And only a few of us had the honor or privilege of being able to write, you know, particularly stories that, you know, sharing your ideas or your analyses. Um, it was a very small and uh, world of people who were given that that privilege uh, and to be paid to do it, you know, as a livelihood. Uh, and then, you know, once the internet came along and people realized, hey, I can type, 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 tap, tap, tap away and put it up there and whoever wants to can come and take a look at it. You know, all of a sudden there was a lot of competition to the professionals out there, right? Mm. And, any, you know, and, you know, opinions, you know, there's old saying, opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. And so people started blogging away. And of course, like with every human endeavor, most people are not good at what they're you know, not great at whatever they're trying to do. But some people were, were quite good at it and they didn't need to be part of the New Republic, National Review, the Nation, Mother Jones, the New York Times, whatever, to start developing a following and an audience 
And people of that generation started looking towards these peers doing all this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that, I thought it was great. It was wild and woolly. It created a lot of competition. And the way that the barriers came down, the barriers to entry that allowed people like Matt, Iglesias, and Ezra to develop a following, the same thing worked for people like me. I was working at the Nation Magazine at the time. And I didn't, you know, I always looked at, you know, established media. You know, you can call it mainstream media. I don't use that as pejorative, you know, but whatever, conventional, but big media as sort of the competition that was impossible to compete with. Possible to compete with the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the networks, and all that when you're working at the Nation Magazine and all you have are 180,000 subscribers and you write once a week and it gets put on this piece of paper and has to go through the post office to get to them. So to get other people to see your work and care about what you're doing and have any impact was quite an uphill climb. Every once in a while you had a big enough story that other people had to pay attention to, but otherwise you were kind of really just working your own patch mm-hmm. and not a very large patch. But with the internet and once the Nation Magazine and everybody else went online, all of a sudden you are able to compete with the big boys, the big girls, whatever you want to say. And I remember the epiphany I had about this uh, when the day it happened. It was the day of the Supreme Court argument in Bush v. Gore, hmm. which was, I guess, in December 2000. Right. It was about the, office, the election that wound up determining the outcome of the election, basically. Yeah. yeah. And my office for the Nation magazine then was literally across the street from hmm. the Supreme Court. And I went to the hearing and I, you know, sussed out what I wanted to write about, went back to my office, wrote something really quick, you know, I'm not even sure it was edited, but it went, it was like a blog and it went up within an hour. And I got all of a sudden like hundreds of thousands of hits, which was a big deal at the time. You get that many still is now. Still is. Yeah. And I realized that I, my piece was up before places like the Times and the Post and AP right. and others. Right. I mean, I was just physically across the street and did something very quick. And I just said, you know, I sort of like, oh my goodness, this means now, you know, and this was on a breaking news sort of thing. It wasn't that I had anything to say that was much different than anybody else. But I said, this means now that if you have something that gets enough attention, either because you're there first or because you have something, information that no other people don't have yet, a scoop, as we call it, you can actually get a gigantic audience as big as, almost as big as if it had appeared on the Times site or anyplace else. And mm-hmm. so, so while bloggers were able to come in and challenge people like you and me and institutions, there was a great leveling right. for, amongst the institutions that did exist. Um, now, of course, the downside of this is that a lot of people uh, who are putting out disinformation, propaganda, and bad information were able to use the same means, and there were no gatekeepers or guardians to say, or referees, to say no to them. So the whole environment became more chaotic and unruly, which has both upsides and downsides. And I'm always I'm reminded of my favorite New Yorker cartoon of all time, which is Charles Dickens, you know, sitting in front of an, a copy editor, um, old style desk. And the editor is saying, 
Now, surely, Mr. Dickens, it could not have been both <laughs> the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> and so, yeah. And um, but then it seems, you know, but blogging, as you know, and you can talk to this kind of like became absorbed by the great media beast that was out there. Yeah. And a lot of the great bloggers got picked up by um, institutions yeah. that existed and were, uh, you know, absorbed and institutionalized. And now, and, and there's very no one out there now who you think of as a blogger, but there are people who have voice who are highlighted by, you know, their institutions, whether it's the Atlantic or the New York Times, and they do things that some of them are kind of bloggy, some are just old style columnists. And I think of someone like Adam Sewer, who was blogging at the American Prospect, uh, you know, a modest size liberal progressive magazine, does a lot of good work. I noticed what he was doing. I hired him to come to Mother Jones. Mm -hmm. And I said, but I want you to blog. I want you to be a writer, a reporter. And he did that and he did very well, so well that he got poached for, for a couple of different places. Where is he now? Well, he's at the Atlantic now. Okay. And he ends up being, you know, a pretty, you know, wonderful established magazine writer, essayist of sorts at the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. He's not blogging anymore. He's not doing, you know, but he, so he has a very sort of conventional um, position having come out of blogging. And that's mm -hmm. happened with a lot of the best bloggers. Now, let me, uh, the other big change and possibly related change, I mean, uh, parallel with changes in the media, you know, has been the much discussed uh, growth in, you know, whatever, polarization, tribalism, yeah. partisan bitterness, so on. And, you know, by the way, uh, if, if all goes according to plan, uh, we may be honored by a visit uh, from no, no, no other than Mickey Kaus eventually. And, and, and this will be a natural segue, if so, to to conversation with him, um, because, uh, as you may have heard, uh, he voted for Donald Trump. Um, and that is the latest and most intense uh, incarnation, I guess, of the uh, polarization thing. But um, you, like me, are old enough to remember the things, you know, that there may never have been a golden age of American Concord. I mean, we we right. we were both pretty pretty young journalists when Newt Gingrich came along. Now, yeah. now I do think he was a little bit of a pioneer of partisan bitterness, kind of right. Like he oh, maybe tremendously so. I mean, he maybe he, helped take it. And 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 look, I got to say, I apologize. David and I are both liberals and and kind of Democrats. And I, I'll try. And in fact, I was going to step in and kind of. Uh, quasi challenge you earlier when you were uh, kind of listing a series of uh, very early in the conversation of things that Trump or Trumpists or Trump supporters kind of believe or said, and ask you whether are you know aren't there some some comparable uh, sins committed on the other side? But we can say that that for when Mickey comes in. What I want to say now is that I try very hard to be as objective as possible and so on, but. Newt Gingrich, and, and look, there had always been, uh, you know, cheap shot artists and 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 so right. on, and and demagogues, but Newt Gingrich was something a little new, right? I don't yes. think that's a hallucination on our part. Yes and no, and it's funny you should raise this because 
Um, the book I'm finishing up literally as as we talk. I should be looking at the last four chapters of the galleys, but instead which is I'm called American Psycho and is not about yeah, Amer- King. American Psychosis. Oh shit! Well, I like you can well American you can have Psycho a, a follow up on Gingrich himself called American Psycho. But go ahead, sorry. Okay. American Psychosis. The book I, is called I, American Psychosis, and it's about the Republican Party's long term relationship with extremism racism, bigotry, paranoia, conspiracy theory. And my thesis is that uh, it, the party, basically from McCarthyism on, has encouraged and exploited extremism in, in American politics. And I make the argument, you know, that it's not a both sides type of thing. And you can look at a lot of di- different examples. If you just go back and start with McCarthyism, McCarthyism accused the Democrats of literally being a conspiracy to destroy the nation. Conspiracy mm. so immense that people like, you know, Truman himself, but everyone in his administration, everybody who uh, supported Democrats. George were, Marshall. Yeah, George Marshall was the one he, he, he targeted directly, uh, who wasn't even necessarily a Democrat, but that they were in league with a foreign power to purposefully undermine, subvert, and destroy America. Not that they were wrong, but they were purposefully, consciously plotting to do this. Um, And there, you know, and McCarthy was lionized in the 1952 convention. You know, he, you know, eventually he went against the army and he he was taken down a notch or two and was, you know, and, and half the party turned against him. But there's no equivalent on the Democratic side of anybody being that demagogic, extreme, and conspiratorial at that level. You can always find, and I'm not talking about progressives or lefties, you can find lefties out there who say all sorts of things the way you can find righties who say all sorts of things. My standard is what the party does. And so to bring in, you know, I I do the whole history, but to jump a few iterations to Newt Gingrich, who you were mentioning, Newt Gingrich, you know, put out a list of words to use to demagogue against the Democrats. They were sick, they were radical, they were traitors, they were disloyal, they were anti-children. And he did this when he was the number two Republican on the House side on his way to becoming House Speaker. He actually sent around the list to Republicans yes. and said, these are the words to use, the labels to apply to Democrats. Like Yes, yes. Uh-huh. They, uh, you know, it was written about at the time. I revisit it in the book. The list is out there. You can Google it, or you can wait and buy American Psychosis when it comes out September 13th. Uh, but there is no, and, and the things that he said, he told one group of Republicans that they had to fight against Democrats with the savagery of a civil war. He said that Bill Clinton had to be challenged as being the enemy of normal Americans. There are no, you cannot give me an example of a Democrat who reached, who became House Speaker and had that amount of influence in the party who talked in those terms and tried to engage in that sort of politics. You can look at John Boehner and the Tea Party. The Tea Party would have rallies that he sponsored, you know, in which they would call the Democrats Nazis or even spit at some members of the Democratic Party. And they would come up with all these conspiracy theories that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim socialist who wanted to destroy America purposefully. Again, there is no 
you can talk about the left being crazy about this or the other thing, but there is no parallel on the Democratic side where leading Democrats fully embraced a political force. Okay, but you know the parallel that is springing to the mind of some people who disagree with you right now, pretty contemporary parallel. Can you guess? You want, no? Well, I think what they would say is the, uh, is Russiagate. But, you know, but this, this is where they're wrong. Well, Well, I mean, Russia happened. It happened. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can take Robert Mueller's word for it. You can take the intelligence community word for it. These are not lefties who've come up with this okay, crazy but Mueller idea. Didn't, but, Mueller... but let, me, let me finish. You can look at the Senate Intelligence Committee when it was run by Republican Marco Rubio. No one should be allowed to talk about Russia unless they've read volumes two and five of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, uh, report, because it clearly shows that Russia attacked and that Trump and his crew aided and abetted the attack by denying it was happening, and that, indeed, there was a degree of collusion between you know, Paul Manafort meeting with a guy who the reports describe as a Russian intelligence officer who might have been involved in the actual Russian operation against this. I mean, uh, you know, people who, who get on you know, the case about no collusion and it's a hoax and all this refuse to address those facts or the fact that there was attempted collusion when Donald Trump Jr., Paul, Man- Paul Manafort, Gerard-, Gerard Kushner were told a Russian emissary is coming here with dirt on Hillary, and he's and she's part of a secret Kremlin plan to help us in the election. And they said, "Great, let's meet with her and see what she has to do." This is, you know, Donald Trump Jr. famous email. If, if it's what you what say, it, I love it. Say, I love it. So there was an attempt at collusion, which indicated to the Russians. Yeah, go ahead, do this. We don't mind. We 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 support you doing this. So um, you know, Trump and his zombies have been able to try to you know cast you know the, the Russia scandal as something that was made up, a hoax, a witch hunt, and, and all that. And you know, unlike McCarthyism, when he said he had a list of two hundred five commies in the State Department, that was completely made up. He didn't have that list mm-hmm. on Russia. We have the receipts. OK, the uh, speaking of Trump, uh, Mickey Kouse has entered the green room. And so I won't uh, I, I just thought I should bring up that uh, that point. Who knows whether it will resurface in, in, in Mickey's presence. But uh, we will now uh, there's a moment everyone's been waiting for. I think is yes. and do we have a drum roll here? Uh, why don't you do the drum roll? Well, that and- was the thing with blogging heads. We never had sound effects. I think it would have been a much bigger smash. We did have actually this we can talk about in Mickey's sound, presence because we did have something better than sound effects. We had, and Mickey will recognize this phrase once he uh, enters the conversation. Hi, Mickey. This is Mickey. <laughs> I love this part. Usually, people can't see this part. This is the way Mickey enters any recording is like he puts his face very close to the screen to try to figure out okay mickey you with us is that because he's oh, too vain to wear glasses maybe uh no it's i had a i can i can only see close out of one eye and i i i haven't gotten the glasses yet that would uh would apply to both eyes. and david's theory and, is that you're too vain but we won't no, we don't need I to once, go there i have to press a little button and i once punched the wrong button and it killed the 
podcast. So I got to make sure I press the right one. That would have been a huge like, loss in this case. It's like having your finger on the nuclear button. Exactly. You don't want to hit, no, you don't no. want to hit the wrong one. Those know? are the stakes we're talking about. Uh, because I would hate to deprive America and the world of this. So anyway, you're no, uh, Mickey, you're no stranger to David Corn. In fact, you introduced me to him. I don't know if you remember, but uh, there was some brunch in D.C. You you got me over to, and that's where I first met David in like the late 90s or something. Oh, that's, that used to be my role in D.C. I was Mr. Mr. Uh, you were the straw that stirred the drink, yeah, Mickey. Mr. Introduction, Mr. Fixer. I was like Bob Strauss. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I I remember your role as being one of um, well, how to put this nicely? Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, you you were you Don't were make too high, much effort. You were a high end escort service for some of the most interesting people in town. Whoa, I think we need a little elaboration. I don't think I don't this should you, remain an abstraction, David. I don't know no, what no, you mean. Mickey by that. was always you know what they what was they used to call it squiring right squiring around ah. interesting people in Washington, often women but not always women. Uh, but just you know you 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 were very good at bringing people to parties there, there, and introduce you know. There must be somebody in particular you're thinking of, but uh, this is this this reminds me of of the profile in the New York Times that said I was famous for knocking boots with everybody in town and the writer didn't know what knocking boots actually meant what does it mean it means it means having sex oh well and, you are famous and, for that so and they just uh, that's not what she meant the truth that's not knocking what she meant boots there, wait uh, was there a profile of you in the new york times mickey when i ran for senate there was an unfortunate oh. profile oh um, yeah how'd that go uh it went great bob yeah are you now there, in the senate are you in the u.s senate they're still counting, Bob. You know, in California, it takes a long time. Yeah, well, the Supreme so, Court will settle this, I'm sure, in the end. Yeah, I'm uh, sure you can find those illegal voters and dead voters who, you know, kept you out of the Senate. Yeah. Um, it was it, it wasn't close, unfortunately. But uh, I'm have I I'm I'm uh, heartened by the fact that that none of the other Quixotic candidates have come close either, except for bizarrely Ron Unz, who did very well. Hmm. Um, so what uh, what have you guys been talking about uh, uh kind of reflecting on changes in media since 2005 2006 and taking a longer term view of kind of uh polarization tribalism partisan bitterness and so on um <laughs> David has actually just finished a book that's going to be out in September called American Psychosis that I gathered. So that is going to go back as far as McCarthy. Is that right? Joseph McCarthy? Well, Nikki is a defender of McCarthy's, by the way, but go ahead, David. No, I'm not. Quasi, quasi. I mean, it kind of goes back in some ways to the Salem witch trials, but mainly to McCarthyism. Mickey also defends those. (laughs) The, um, um, because I was thinking, I was, I was trying to, I was thinking of just that topic and I was, it seems to me there are three, obvious explanations. One is it's a natural sorting enabled by the web. People find the people they agree with and they like to listen to them. The second thing is uh, it's Trump. If Hillary had been elected, would the media be this bad? Uh, I'm not so sure. And the third thing is uh, it's those damn woke millennials and Gen Zers who are raised in a different culture, especially in colleges. And according to Ryan Grimm, are causing meltdowns in left-wing organizations across Washington. I'm sure David has better 
can, can adjudicate among those theories or suggest yes. a fourth? Yes. Well, I think it depends what you're, you know, what you're diagnosing to begin with. I mean, there isn't one, if you want to call it a problem, there isn't one problem here. I think there are overlapping trends that, you know, that, that, that interweave with each other and that, 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 that's driving, that, that, are, that are driving us all a bit crazy. And I think they come, you know, for, for, for different reasons. Um, I mean, I think if you just, you know, Mickey, before you got on, we were talking about just sort of political uh, tribalism. And I, you know, we were talking about you know, how Newt, Gin Newt Gingrich was a pioneer in a certain type of, you know, conservative demagoguery that I was arguing did not really have a parallel on the other side, on the other side of the aisle, in that there's no Democrat, you know, you know, no person, no prominent Democrat who put out a list of, 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 of words to, you know, attach to your opponents to delegitimize de them as human beings. Uh, I mean, and, and, and so I, I think this, and I think what he was doing was an extension of what the new right did in the seventies and is an extension of going back you know, to some degree to McCarthyism and, and, and Bircherism in the in the 50s and 60s. So I think, you know, in general, uh, the, on the right, I'm talking about the GOP intersection with the right, there's been a more of a drive towards uh, a tribalism that involves the Republican Party than there has been on the on the on the you know, on the left Democratic side. You know, often the left and the Democrats fight more amongst themselves than with the other side. The um, you know figuring out what's happened with the media is really tough too because you know what do you you know how do you, you know, talk about the media? I think the natural sorting out, which also people talk about happening geographically, right? Right, Over the right. past 10, 20, 30 years, people tend to live in places now with people who share their ideas. And to me, that's what's one thing that's interesting about that is, as, you know, it seems that the ideas are more divided and polarized, you know, in a way now than they were uh, maybe in the 80s or 90s. I'm not quite positive how you would measure that. So if you're sorting out in that way now, it's the divide is bigger. I guess is what I'm saying. Like the political divide is bigger. So if you start looking for people, now does that cause you to look for people to, on your side that you feel comfortable with, or does it? Or by by doing that, do we make the divide itself bigger? I don't know. Uh, uh, probably both. But one thing, one 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 way to look at it is, um, I was thinking, uh, I was reading Christopher Caldwell's book, The Age of Entitlement. And it's a pretty good book. It's chock full of like, you know, each paragraph has a different little aperçu. And uh, one of his arguments is that Roe versus Wade uh, helped divide the country. That before Roe versus Wade, we were inching toward a general consensus that abortion should be legal. They were fighting it out in state legislatures. The pro-choice people were winning. And I was thinking, well, maybe if they reverse Roe, which they may be about to do, uh, Maybe that'll help bring the country together again because we'll have to have these legislative battles. And in my experience, legislative battles actually produce a result that people are happier with because at least they fought and won something. But then I thought, no, I, that's crazy. Some Republican in Alabama is going to introduce a, you know, a, a bill. I think it's already been introducing anybody who thinks of having an abortion should be committed to a mental institution, and and they get 
people are going to get publicity for doing the craziest thing possible. And it's just going to spiral into uh, the same sort of, uh, you know, crazy warfare that we've seen. That, I think, is is just truer now than it used to be that being outrageous is rewarded. There have always been people who, who, you know, who harnessed outrageousness. But I think something about social media and the algorithms, at least as they currently are, and maybe just the fact that people have not yet adjusted to social media and corrected uh, accordingly in terms of how they process things. But I do think that increasingly some of the highest profile people are the people who are just uh, most indifferent to being widely hated, right? They're just willing to be super outrageous and have a lot of people who totally hate them. But, you know, it's working for them. And I, I just think that's truer now than it used to be. Uh, well, I, I think it's true because we go back to what we talked about before Mickey graced us with his presence. <laughs> that's the absence of of you can call them gatekeepers, but I also like I often like to refer to them as referees. You know, it's you know if if no one's calling fouls on the court, then the guy who throws elbows and steps on people's toes and has no shame about that is going to have an advantage, right? Because you know no one can kick him out of the game, no one can make him sit on the bench, and no one says what you said there is factually incorrect or just tremendously out you know out so outrageous that we're going to drum you out of polite society um so there you know so you're right in that there you you know there is a an incentive uh, bob you get the attention you get the clicks and sometimes that also turns into money not in terms of blogging heads but for other people if they get a lot of clicks they can generate uh, some money out of it there's a financial incentive um but uh, at, at the same time, uh, there's no one to say you're wrong, no one who blows the whistle. Um, so those are both powerful forces and uh, and bad information is cheaper to produce. Some you know you know the lie goes around the world often faster than the truth. Uh, so bad faith actors have a tremendous advantage as of now, in the world of social media and, and the world of online media. It, Go ahead. It is true that when I'm thinking of who has who has been so extreme that they have been uh, demoted in the public discourse, the way that ga- the gatekeepers or referees used to say, okay, you know, this person is crazy, we're going to ignore him uh, or her. And yeah. it's true that the only people who have been removed are the people who Twitter has banned. I mean, well, what what about Matt, Milo? What about Milo when Breitbart abandoned him? That kind of, even right, even Breitbart wanted to marginalize him. If you've gone that far, right, he's he's, is he, he back? Where is he? But he's working for Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's an intern. He's an unpaid intern. But but he was he was basically removed from the discourse when Twitter banned him, and he he made the statement that all, that everybody makes is I'm going to be bigger than ever. I don't need Twitter. No, you need Twitter. Without Twitter, you're nothing. <laughs> the same thing happened to Charles Johnson, the right-wing Charles Johnson, who is very influential and he's everywhere. He crops up in the oddest places, but he doesn't have the presence on the in the national discourse he used to have. Well, you mean the guy who has, you know, arguably talked down the Holocaust? Uh, yes, that guy. Okay. Well, there are two Charles well, Johnsons, a left-wing yeah, Charles yeah. Johnson yeah, and a right-wing Charles Johnson. What I'm pointing out, you know, it wasn't as if he's been demoted 
Same with Milo for no for no reason. I mean, it used to be <laughs> that you know if you did said something either really wrong, you got your facts wrong, or you you know that, that there were certain boundaries to conversation and um, and the you know the, the social media and, and the internet has you know made it much harder for anyone to enforce those boundaries, which is one reason we have Donald Trump. What? Who, you vote, who, who you voted for, Mickey? What? Um, what? One, one, one way to uh, one way to um, to get demoted is to lose an election badly. Uh, look, there was a woman. Well, in, a I mean, yes and no. I mean, Donald Trump lost an election. He may, may not badly. I mean, has he, he has. And, and this is this is actually a very interesting case because in years past, when you when when you, when you lose an election and your party that you lead loses control of Congress, the party then usually kind of like sees you as being a stinker and they don't stand by you. No one stood by Richard Nixon in 1960, he clawed his way back after losing the governor's race in your great state of California. Um, no one stood by Jimmy Carter afterwards and said, you know, we want you to come back, Jimmy. No one stood by George H.W. <laughs> Bush. And, like, it was all like, okay, you were demoted. We understand this. You were demoted. But Adlai yeah. Stevenson, David. Adlai yeah. Stevenson. He, well, he is, got his. They loved yeah. him. He got his choice. And, and indeed, Dewey got nominated more than once, a few times. But but the, but I'm talking about people, particularly presidents. All these cases mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned, well, Nixon was vice president, have been presidents who have lost. And the party has almost always said, nice to, you know, we had a good time. Nice to know you. We'll call you for the next convention. You can come in and wave. Well, but the but thing, yeah, with, but thing yeah, about Trump, Trump is his emergence itself in 2016 reflected the fact that the party had lost yes. the kind of power the parties used to have. They didn't want him to be the nominee. No, they, they didn't. But even now when he loses and loses Congress for them, and it wasn't just the party. I think the base kind of went along. The, no, the Goldwater base in 64 didn't want him to come back in 68. I mean, maybe some did, but there wasn't like well, that wasn't a big push for that. And he didn't even give it a shot. So but here you have obviously the base of the Republican Party is still enthralled with Trump and to such a degree, not just to a little degree, but to such a degree that even this what would be a normal conversation, it's time to find our next thing is cannot happen. It's cannot happening. Happen. It's just it, it, it's just happening under the hovering presence of this giant who's probably going to win anyway, but it's definitely happening. You mean what do you mean uh, under the president? Republicans are looking for alternatives to Trump, but they're but you're saying Trump is going to prevail and get the nomination. He'll probably prevail. It's it, it, you know there That's are people. That's point, right? But no, I thought he was saying it wouldn't even happen. Well, it's, I mean, the it's conversation wouldn't oh. happen. I mean, it's oh. happening sub rosa among some Republicans have always talked about how to get rid of Trump, but it's but the party's not even able to have this conversation out in the open. Wait till wait wait till after the midterms and see we'll see that's their that's their chance to yeah, come well, out and I, have the know, conversation. Yeah, yeah, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I I I keep waiting for the party to you know act responsibly. Going back to not just you know you can start with Access Hollywood, but you can go back before that as well. And you know they they just don't. I guess so. Uh, just a quick aside, what I was talking about was something else. It was not losing a presidential election by nine points or whatever Trump did. It was being Orly Tate. Remember her? She was like a dentist 
in California. And I think she was a tea partier or there was something crazy about her. Okay. She was a birther. She was one of the lead birthers. Okay. She got a lot of press until she ran for election and got like 6% of the vote. Then she's through. Okay. So that's another way. Twitter can ban you or you can run for election and get a minuscule portion of the vote. I think of ways you can be removed from the public discourse. Okay, well, um, fair she enough. Did be- she did better than I did, which is <laughs> which is something that Dave Weigel kept pointing out in his <laughs> and, blog, and which you, you drove me fucking removed, crazy. But, but, but yet you have not been removed from the political discourse as much as we may even want to I'm, see that happen. I'm the Adlai Stevenson of... of Blogging against TV. Of cranks, of cranks. Yeah. Uh, so here's a question, like, so we were talking about the demise of gatekeepers. And first of all, I, I'm sure we'd all say, David, you'd say, as we said earlier, in fact, there are downsides. You know, there, there, there was a to to an era of tight gatekeeping. Right. There there are views yeah, yeah, that are yeah. that are not getting out that should. It takes longer, maybe, to understand that Vietnam is a disaster, for example, and so on. There's all kinds of problems. But are we saying that Trump, the, the Trump presidency is a manifestation of the demise of gatekeepers and and if so would mickey say that's an example of how well i'll, I'll i won't I would say that here. it's the product of the elites uh, suppressing uh arguments about immigration and trade and the destruction to the heartland that uh that 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 were real arguments and and then they they were suppressed and then they exploded as suppressed things tend to do well and i would say that you know with um you know that with Trump, you know the, you know there's always been a lot of lying and spinning in politics. You know, forever, um, but there always seemed to be like okay, instead of getting five fouls in a basketball game, you know, in politics you would get the equivalent of fifty fouls. But you know, at some point, someone would come in and say, "This guy is just a lying sack of." Of, of a politician, and that would ha- mean something and have an impact. Uh, Trump totally blew through that, and he made disinformation propaganda, you know, a core part of his appeal, his campaign, his presidency. I mean, you know, even even today, um, I was covering the January six hearings, and you know, Trump before they begin, as he does said, I was talking to Brad Raffensperger in November, and he told me the election was rigged and I had won in Georgia, the Secretary of State. So they get Brad Raffensperger up there. And he goes, the president, the former president just tweeted this, or not tweeted, because he's not on Twitter. He just, whatever he, whatever his, his, his social media operation that is falling apart, he did it on that. And then he had to actually send it out through an email to get it to people in the media. Anyway, he said this. And Brad says, that's that's wrong. That's a lie. He's making up a conversation here. Now, in years past, it would have mattered if somebody, particularly another Republican of, of, of high reputation, called out a president politician for lying so directly about this. But with Trump, this is now... What, what are we? We're, we're in June. So he, you know, he averages, you know, close to 8,000 lies a year. So this is only lie 4,000 of 2022. Right. And, 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 and so in this instance, 
there are there are no gatekeepers. You know, I go back to my metaphor. There are no referees. And, you know, and I think it's kind of sad. And Mickey, you voted for the guy. I think it's sad that Americans out there um, have, while we've always accepted a certain level of dishonesty in our politicians, because otherwise we'd have no one to vote for, but to accept this titanic Olympian level of lies from this guy and dangerous lies all the time, you know, to me is something that's different. I, I agree he's taken the, that to a new level, but I remember after Watergate, I thought, okay, you can't lie to the American people. Nixon got into trouble when his lie about, you know, whatever the smoking gun tape showed yeah. uh, was was some unveiled that he'd been lying. And then I remember George H.W. Bush, the older Bush, got in front of the cameras and said, I never said voodoo economics. And everybody knew he'd said voodoo economics. And of course they had it on tape him saying voodoo economics. Yeah. He knew he'd said voodoo economics. And immediately they produced a tape and showed him up as a liar. And nobody busted him for it. He wasn't damaged. They all said, ha, ha, ha. Uh, you know, you tried to put one over and I sold George, didn't you? Okay. Like that was the start. And I said, wait, he's the president. You get impeached if you lie to the American people. He just lied to the American people. What's happening? And and so I claim that the, 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 the standards were eroding before Trump. I agree that Trump is sui generis bad. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I, I think they've been around, you know, you, you skipped the, the Reagan years, of course, there. I mean, I don't think George oh. W. Bush was the first guy who, who did this. I mean, Reagan, you know, in, in, in the in his great line, I was just reading about this yesterday for the youngsters out there. You know, he had this great line, there you go again, when he when he debated Jimmy Carter. Like, oh, you know, you're trying to get me. There you go again. For some, for some reason, I never understood why people thought that was a tremendously witty you know, effective put down. And what he was responding to was that Jimmy Carter was saying you once called for, you know, making, was it making social security voluntary or ending Medicare, one of the two things. And he had kept saying through the campaign of 1980 that he hadn't, but he had. So, you know, Carter was trying to call him out on this particular relevant fact. And he just, there you go again, not true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the, your belief, young Mickey Kaus, young idealistic Mickey Kaus in the aftermath of Nixon's um, fall, believing that politicians could not lie again. It didn't take too long for the well, that was the whole fall. And the whole, the whole Jimmy Carter thing, of course, was I will never lie to you. I mean, he, yes, yeah, right. But I do think, you know, um, there, you know, that while there's always been an accept, you know, what we consider, I don't know how you measure it. A sec an acceptable level of deception, um, you know, Trump has brought it to a, 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 a level that is particularly dangerous because uh, if we can't, you know, agree on reality and it's all about alternative facts, yeah, there were a million people there when there weren't, then, you, you, you know, you can't have the, the policy debates that you, Mickey, want to have about things. You know, you can't, if, you know, how can you have a debate with Trump or a discourse with Trump about immigration or trade or anything when he's out there and you may like his positions, but he's still saying shit that's not true about all this stuff. I have, you know, you know, I did this with the Chinese. I did this with, you know, with North Korea. You know, the, you know, there are terrorists, you know, there are hundreds of terrorists coming in. Do you have proof of this with the you know, illegal immigrants? Um, no, but it could be happening. I mean, so, I, you know, so you can't even have the honest debates 
that Mickey Kaus, well, policy meister, wants there, to have. There's now some evidence for that, but the latter point. But uh, the uh, you know, it, it, I think there's a movement among Republicans, and we'll see after the election. You know, there certainly the elite don't fall for his BS, and uh, I you know we'll see if they have if the if the hardcore Trumpers are so loyal that they will keep falling for it. Uh, I my friend John Ellis thinks yes they will. Um, uh, I tend to think uh, it's a close question. Uh, but go ahead. No, go ahead. No, uh, you know that's why there there that's why people are desperate to find a solution to the Trump problem. And I actually um, I th I thought I'd come up with one. Uh, You're going to run yesterday. No, get Ron DeSantis to appoint Ivanka senator as part of a deal that where Trump doesn't run. It requires getting either Marco Rubio or Rick Scott to stop being senator. That's, a, but, that's um, a high price to pay, but maybe not too high in this case. That's definitely Ivanka, not too high. Ivanka definitely not too Senate. high. Um, just one quick thing, you know, in terms of the kind of tolerance for untruth, I don't think that's exactly what it is. I mean, I think the problem is that all the people in Trump's tribe do not trust those of us who say he's lying enough to believe us. I mean, I mean, it's, I, I, I think some, yeah, right. sure, some of his point. exaggerations they think are exaggerations, but fundamentally there's just deep distrust of mainstream media. And I don't think mainstream media is totally innocent here. I think one thing that happened with Trump is that he freaked so many people out, including me, but, but that the reaction in the media became so kind of inflamed that that deepened the distrust of Trump supporters uh, of the media. And, and, um, but, but wait a second here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm for doing all the fucking New York Times stories about the guys in the diners too. Okay. I don't <laughs> mind those stories, but the thing is, okay, who's responsible for what here? Uh, Donald Trump, goes on Alex Jones's radio show, calls him a great fucking American. This is a guy who's putting forward, you know, you know, pollution, you know, in terms of propaganda, disinformation. And um, and at the time, actually, I was one of the few people who wrote about it. And it wasn't the media didn't go crazy about it. The media gave him fucking three hours of coverage every time he held a rally and just let him say whatever sure, he said. Sure. And they and they didn't and they, my dog's getting excited and they didn't fact check him or say, no, we're not going to show him because I mean, I mean, well, Trump, that was back oh, when they thought he wouldn't win and they yeah, were just yeah, getting yeah, the milking him for yeah, ratings. Yeah. But Trump, I mean, listen, you know, Trump supporters, maybe they're all just damn snowflakes. I mean, no candidate ever had it so good. Okay. You know, you know, he was treated as, you know, as a joke as a bit, but as a celebrity um, and you know, there were, you know, there were very few stories. That, I mean, I was there. There were no stories in the mainstream media about his mob ties. You know, some stories about him not paying folks who he owed money to, but not many. No real good deep dives into his conflicts of interest no. internationally and domestically. Nothing about. I, read, I remember reading a best-selling book about his connections to Russia. Yeah, that was in 2018. I'm talking about up until. You know, through the election. Go ahead and oh, plug I, the book, David. I didn't Russian realize it was by, that late. Russian Roulette by David Korn and Michael Isakoff. Uh, Hashat 12 imprint came out in 2018, number one New York Times bestseller. But I'm just saying he had such an easy ride. And so for people to say, oh, 
I don't trust the media because of the way they handled Donald Trump. Well, you tell me, you show me one candidate who's ever run for president, or you, Mickey, who ran for Senate, who wouldn't want the deal that he got in 2015 right? and 2016. Well, I, I agree. That's not the part I'm talking about, David. I agree that. I mean, I think the media was actually pretty hard on Hillary, again, partly because they thought she would win regardless, maybe, and partly because yeah. there was real news. Well, there was uh, click. There was good clickbait in some of the hacked emails, you know, and yeah. so on. So so they did kind of they were kind of hard on Hillary during the campaign. I'm just saying that once Trump became president, uh, I think the media reacted in a way that reinforced uh, their uh in the eyes of Trump supporters, uh, but, but you know, but in the but, but again, it reinforced what? I mean, what did the media cover that was untrue? This was a guy who, through 2016, was trying to score hundreds of millions of dollars in a deal with Moscow. It, it isn't even that. It's it. not. I'm not saying they said things that were untrue. It, it's it was so obvious that they were working to highlight. Whatever they could that was bad about him. I mean, I just think in but, in that okay, in, in that sense. You say the same thing about about Bill Clinton, you know, supporters in the '90s, or you know, or Barack Obama. No one talks about you know, you know, Barack Obama took a bunch of hits after you know when he you know I say after 2010, and now we're going to bend over backwards to understand why Barack Obama supporters and pissed off at the media. We don't. Well, do here's, that. here's a good example. Uh, they're about to, there were these border patrol agents on horseback that Biden, echoing a lot on the left, said had whipped Haitian migrants. There's no evidence they whipped Haitian migrants. The photographer who took the picture said they didn't whip Haitian migrants. Uh, they, and this is just a, just bullshit. And the president of the United States spouted it and everybody on the left believes it. And they're about to discipline these poor suckers uh, for something they didn't do. So um, uh, that would be... A, one good example of just going too far. Everything there's a there's a there's a uh, partisan yeah, fact is, generating happened, machine on both happened, sides is out of control. But this happens. Yeah, this happens all the time. In the, in the 1980s, the Reagan said, "We're not supporting people committing massacres in El Salvador." And A. M. Rosenthal, the New York Times, killed Ray Bonas' great work on the, all this. You know, they they they, they you know at El Mazote and other places they were killing hundreds of people. Okay, and so people were right to be suspicious of Reagan and were right to be suspicious of the New York Times. This shit happens all the time. I mean, there's something, but but that, 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 that but then that doesn't mean that I go running around and looking at, I don't know, Mondale or Dukakis and believe any shit they say because I'm pissed off by how the media is covering you, the issue. You, you can't read today's New York Times and not think... A, it is changed from A.M. Rosenthal's New York Times. It's way to Thank the God. left, much more partisan. And B, if you're on the right, you're not going to believe the New York Times the way you used to under A.M. Rosenthal because it's way more biased to the left. But well, I don't think I don't think it's just I don't think it's just right left. It's it, it, there's something in the tone of coverage. There's more explicit editorializing in purportedly straight news coverage and and uh, and and in headlines. I mean, David, I'll give you an example. It used to be the norm, I think, in in in, in straight up repertorial journalism that you didn't it wasn't your job to call something a lie. You would I'm, say he he said this. And yeah. then if there was clear contrary evidence, you'd cite the evidence. If somebody on the other side said 
he that what he said isn't true. You'd quote them, but it wasn't the journalist's job to use the word lie. That changed after Trump. And the New York Times started putting lie in the headline. And, yeah, and they still do. And, and that's what I mean is like Trump supporters are not imagining that they changed the rules for Trump. Now, you and I might say he lied more than any president ever, which I believe is the case. Right. I'm just telling you what it looks like to people who are Trump supporters. That, that's I, that changes me, the rules but, isn't but in, the in their point, imagination. You know, but you know what? Complaining about media coverage to justify your support of a liar is bogus. It's bullshit. If you care, yeah, you but know, you know, it, I'm not doing that because I don't support him. Okay, but we're I'm not, saying, but, we're to not, just, but, but to justify to say, oh, these people are accepting Trump. Because they don't like the way the media is covering him, and it's unfair the way they cover him. Mickey's got um, a bigger media hit even than us, I think. He's got. A, he's got. A, I'm serious. He's getting called to do a Facebook chat. Oh, um, thirty seconds. Okay. I have a pre-existing radio commitment. The point is, we're just trying <laughs> to explain why people on the right can't right. be talked to by the media anymore, not whether they, they're yeah, justified we're not, I'm not, not trying supporting. to justify just, Trump or them. We're, we're, explaining, we're explaining why the media can't be gatekeepers. That's all. Yeah, anyway, well, yeah, I got to go. I, I, I agree with that. But at the same point, I think it lets off people yeah. easy. Is, by, you know, in, in terms of, you know, they, they're still out there. I, Whatever their attitude is towards the media, they're still supporting yeah. a tremendous liar who lies literally about everything yeah. and yeah. who... You know, well, anyway, Mickey has to go. So I think you. Right. I think you timed this well, David. He has to leave without replying. <laughs> okay. Bye, okay. See ya. See you guys. Okay. Yeah. Well, what Mickey would have <laughs> said, which is like actually a hobby horse of mine, is that you should be able to explain why bad people are doing things or people who are considered bad are doing things without being accused of justifying the behavior. I see this all the time. You know, I personally think. I don't want to get into a big Ukraine war argument, but I personally think the U.S. has mismanaged its relationship with Russia. I like to point that out. I think NATO expansion was stupid. And when people say, oh, those are Putin talking points, you're a Putin apologist. It's just bullshit. I'm just trying to explain to you that I think we made a foreign policy mistake of a kind we shouldn't repeat. So right. I get kind of sensitive about this conflation between explaining and uh, excusing. Sorry, I'll calm down. No, no, I, I understand that. And I, you know, and I was one of the why are we expanding NATO yeah. you know, lefties in the in the 90s and aughts as, as well? And it's a really interesting in, in, in conversation to have, and particularly when it becomes the way it's become so circular in that, you know, I'm, I'm not justifying what Putin did, but, you know, and I'm not saying if we had not justified, if we had not expanded NATO, that this would not have happened. But certainly it, you know, it created this dance now where um, NATO seems relevant when 20 years ago it might not have been relevant but right. nevertheless i don't go down that rabbit hole with you i mean I, I just you know you know you know to me you know the problem is not trump let me just bring it back the problem is not the media the problem is that tens of millions of americans look at trump and either believe or accept his lies, as well as his bigotry, his hatred, his pettiness, his narcissism, and say, yeah, that's what we want more of. I mean, if it wasn't for that, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy could have bounced him, you know, and if it wasn't for that, he obviously wouldn't have been elected. Um, and the problem here is that there's this degree of, whether you want to call it grievance, resentment, 
whether a lot of it is, is fueled by racism or on the ease over changing demographics, wherever you want to put it, that we have a society that has, you know, been infected or influenced, whether you want to be pejorative or not, enough by all these trends. So enough Americans are willing to put aside the values and standards that we used to at least, um, you know, pretend to have. Yeah, look, I'm as alarmed as anybody else. I mean, it's funny, you know, this will not air for, uh, you know, a week or two. So uh, any anything we say about the January 6th hearings are not, uh, you know, hot off the presses. But I, I have not, I just tuned in every once in a while to these. And, uh, but every time I do, it, it's like, usually it's something I already knew. And yet I'm still blown away. It's like, to be reminded like of that phone call with Rathensburger, you know, that, that was like today. And I, I had heard the phone call and, and, yeah. and, and yet, and I'm just going, and then the new stuff I hear, like, like the discussions, uh, you know, over this whole Eastman scheme within the, within the white house, you know, and, and the, the thing that Pence's lawyer was the count, you know, Pence's lawyer arguing yeah. with him and so on. The new stuff I hear blows me away. The stuff I already knew blows me away. Look, I'm very, I, I'm just, I, I, you know, I, I do work hard to step back and understand uh, what drives Trumpism. David, I don't know if you know, but uh, I can, I'm among the Americans who can say, probably not many of your friends can say this, but three of my four siblings voted for Trump. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in touch with this. And, uh, uh, you know. Well, I, I think politically, we, you know, we need to understand why people vote the way they vote. Right. Right. That's what politics is all about. And that's, whoops, let me let the dog out so she can go. Definitely. Uh, uh, let me see if I can see the dog. Eh, damn it. Um, but, um, you know, that, you know, that's a politics that's, you know, organizing is reaching people where they are, not where you want them to be, blah, 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 blah. So I think it is, under, it is important to understand. But I also don't want to get into the position of excusing Americans who support someone who incites insurrectionist violence. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, we have to understand why they feel this way. Well, I, uh, yes and no. <laughs> and, um, you know, I still, you know, I was at the, I, I didn't go to the hearing, the one that's happening at, today when, we, when we're recording, but I went to the first two and I was in the room and I watched, you know, the videos that they show again. And I've watched all the videos. I've watched all the videos produced by the New York Times and everybody else. So, you know, documentaries that have come out and so on. CNN, I think, did a good one, too. And every time I watch it, I am just irate. Mm -hmm. I'm just irate because I feel like, you know, one of the few things that, that we... <laughs> Your dog really is like mine. Yeah. Come on. Chronic come on. malcontent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and I'm all right because I, you know, America is a big country. We have a lot of differences here, a lot of different people, different stories, different backgrounds, different locations. But there's, you know, but we all have, a, you know, a shared interest. We all own stock in our in our government for good or bad, and for what you know, and and hopefully in the ideals that we, you know, that we hope it can, you know, someday attain, at least strive towards. And so when I see people. You know, attacking the capital that way, I really feel like, you know, I own a little piece of that. I pay taxes. Yeah. You know, I'm also I live in the D.C. area. I own a little piece of that, and it makes me really pissed off. 
And the fact that you know, a lot of Americans are just you know dismissing it, don't care, a lot of leading Republicans. Um, it's like, you, you know, what, you know, what does it take? What, you know, what justifies, you know, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, every other Republican out there to just downplay, dismiss this, ignore this, say it doesn't matter. And, you know, while they're also out there passing laws at the state level, try, try to get more control of the counting process for votes, for elections. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's it's not you know whether they're doing this because they don't like cultural change or they never had the debate over trade and immigration policy that Mickey was talking about that they want to a certain degree well it, it doesn't matter if that leads them to this point um, they well, become threats to yeah a, but, the but don't system. you I mean I think I'm as alarmed as you are about uh, in part because I worry that this is actually part of larger structural things, which is going to make it even harder to attack. But don't you agree that uh, if, you know, if you analyze what motivates them, and that leads you to conclude that, hey, you know, there's some policies Democrats could float that would actually be quite consistent with democratic values, yeah. like like do, do more things for uh, working people or unemployed people or whatever, I mean that analysis is worthwhile at, at a minimum, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, you know where I come from. That's yeah. the type of democratic policy I want. But I, you also know that you know there was a great book that came out about Trump voters called Identity Crisis. I, you know, forgive me for not remembering the names of the three academics who co-wrote it. But you know, um, not surprisingly, you know their uh, uh, their conclusion was that it was mainly about uh, race and identity. Mm-hmm. And that you know, and you you and you remember Heather, Heather McGee's uh, uh, book um, that came out a couple of years ago, in which she you know used as a metaphor the story of the swimming pools that you know uh, that when they were when it was time when they were ordered to be integrated, mm-hmm. which is a southern town, that white people decided they'd rather not have swimming pools than have integrated swimming pools. They so they would take away something that they themselves enjoyed. You know, yeah. so like, so coming in and saying, as a Democrat, say in this instance, we can give you better swimming pools. But, you know, they wouldn't want that because to them, the the race factor was more. So yes, I do believe that Democrats, like you know, sure, you know, uh, uh, Sherrod Brown in Ohio and others, uh, should be fighting for progressive populist policy issues. I mean, to me, it's pretty obvious. If you look at you know the whole fight over Build Back Better, that the Democrats are saying, do you want your teeth after you're 65 years of age? You're gonna have dental mm-hmm. and your Medicare coverage. 25% of West Virginians over the age of 65 have no teeth. So why the fuck is Manchin not doing everything he can to try to give these people teeth? Why is that not good politics and good policy? Um, you know, people say they want, you know paid leave uh, for, uh, for you know, parental leave and for illnesses of taking care of kids or your, your elders. Uh, people want pre universal pre-K. I mean, there are all these things out there that clearly, clearly, clearly one side wants to deliver and one side says, no, too much money, you know, deficits, which they didn't care about before. Um, and it seems kind of obvious to me. I'd like the Democrats to make it more obvious the way Truman ran in, you know, 
you know, in 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 forty eight against the Do Nothing Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, my my fear, having looked at what's happened with Trumpism, Bob, is that that's still not enough. Let me let me ask you this. And, and then we should close. Because yeah, yeah. This is I, a good. This is a good wrap-up question. Maybe that's actually not that great. It's a good. It's a good <laughs> something. But who? Let's assume that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not the candidate. I realize one of them probably will be, much to my yeah. dismay personally. But if they if they weren't, who would your choice be for somebody who can win a general election? Which Democrat? Yeah, you know, um, I'm flummoxed. Oh. I don't. Ha- I don't. The answer is right well. Now, you mentioned Sherrod Brown. Now there are rumors that he has uh, a skeleton in his closet or something. But uh, yeah, but, but he, he, yeah. doesn't he I fit mean, the profile? He fits. You know, if you want sort of a feisty roll up your sleeves, you know, union guy. Yeah, he does. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any credence to any of those to those rumors about him. And after Trump, why should we care? I know his wife. Connie, she's great. And she, you know, they have a great, they, from the outside, you never can tell, but from the outside, they have a great relationship and um, seem to. Uh, so if she's good by, if, if, if she's good by him, you know, after Trump, why should we care what any skeletons right. there are? Right. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I've always liked him. I, I'd be interesting to see, you know, but he, you know, he, he's kind of that scruffy guy. And, you know, is that, you know, can that work in, in national? I mean, given the threat that I, I I think we face from Trumpism, with or without Trump, I'm all for you know winning. I mean, I think it's just totally. too. I think it's it's too perilous to give Trump or a Trumpist you know that power again and to have them learn from the the, the all the missed opportunities last time. So um, I don't think right now the Democratic bench looks that strong um you know i've always liked um uh you know murphy um chris murphy or, or chris, the chris murphy in connecticut yeah um, although he hasn't you know he he's not shown an interest in running nationally when you know last cycle or two so maybe he doesn't want to um you know not everybody wants to do this i understand that um, that probably just means they're they're saner than than most politicians. Uh, so so I don't know. I really you know I think it's it's tough. Um, yeah, and and then, you know you look you know you look at you know can you know we had this question with Barack Obama, but you know whether a black American can become president. I was always very doubtful, and I until the very end I was doubtful that that he could win. Just because of racism, but could a uh, a woman win, particularly a Democratic woman who's not, you know, like the Iron Lady, uh, like like, like um, Thatcher in England? Could a gay American win? Could Pete Buttigieg? I worry. Know, I you know I, I I I still think those are those are difficult questions to to contend with. I would not say that people well, shouldn't run well, or vote for that, but I think those are still real questions. Uh, Chris Murphy's a good example, and I'll let you go after this, but of, of what I think is the case, which is that you don't have to have some highly charismatic, Chris Murphy's not very charismatic, but but he's a smart guy who, if you put him next to Trump on a debate stage, will just seem like the reasonable adult in the room. And, and, and he's 
Whereas with Joe Biden, you know, there are days when you have doubts about whether he's still, uh, you know, still got it all together. And Kamala Harris pushes various people's buttons in ways that would not be entirely fortunate. I just think you have to put somebody next to Trump who seems like, yeah, I could see that person in the White House and, and they don't drive me crazy because I think Trump, he's even older. He's, you know, a lot of people would love to vote for somebody other than Trump. Just give them somebody they don't dislike. That's my theory of the case. But uh, no, I, I, I thought I thought you know any generic can any generic Democrat um, people didn't know would, would would have beaten Trump. You know, people didn't you know um, instead of Hillary. Yeah, instead of yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's you know again you know hate unfortunately is a pretty powerful motivator. Yeah. So if people don't like a candidate um it's um it's it's hard for people to get get over that um but uh i i think you know a a middle of the road milk toast not exciting democrat who doesn't um cause concern is not a bad way to go if, if trump's going to be the nominee if it's going to be ron DeSantis, then you got a different thing going mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's then, true Right. Then you need something that's more positive and proactive, not yeah. just someone who's not just a non-Trump. So, um, uh, you know, check back in in a year and we'll is- see if anybody has emerged. OK, well, thank you so much, David. And, and thank you for being in on this uh, from the beginning. And uh, everybody, well, I, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I always really relished doing blogging heads. I thought it was a great thing you put on. I liked watching it. I liked doing it. Sometimes it was was sometimes multi-generational with with younger um, journalists. Um, And the debates and discussions that I always had were always civil. You know, sometimes they weren't amusing. And even when they weren't amusing, they still were civil. And I I do miss that. Um, But I thank you for providing that platform and you know perhaps as a goal um something to strive for we can aim for the you know instead of classic rock classic blogging heads that, that could be our that could that, be our lodestar that is america's lodestar i think you put it better than i possibly could have and i and i i'll try to turn that into some kind of uh ad that we run in the super bowl or something um well thank you so much everybody should buy american psychosis uh, and they should subscribe in September, I mean, your book, and subscribe to Our Land, your newsletter. And my newsletter is called Non-Zero, as is now what used to be called uh, Blogging Heads, which means this podcast, this YouTube channel, and so on. So I'll let you get back to finishing the book. We're all going to read, David. And Thank and then you, when Bob. you're all done and rested up, you can come back and talk to us some more. Yeah, let's do it when the book's out. But thanks. All right. Okay. See you soon. All right. See you.